Toronto is unaffordable. It's headline news. People of all kinds of income brackets struggle to find a permanent foothold in this booming metropolis. About this time last year, I was bouncing from apartment to apartment just trying to find a place I could really call home. I had lived on the top two floors of a house on Ossington for nine years. It was home. But I got a call from the landlord. Her daughter, she told me, needed the place. One of the few reasons you can evict a tenant in good standing. Common story. So, I spent over a year just kind of drifting. I had a number of jobs, a support network of family and friends, a credit card. I was in no danger of being homeless. But that year and change was kind of a wash full of abandoned projects, late deadlines, and missed opportunities. The value of a home, a real, even semi-permanent one, can't be overstated. Still, I consider myself lucky. Because also about this time last year, the city was scrambling to deal with its seemingly perpetually overcrowded shelter system. And this year, with housing advocates calling for a state of emergency, and people living in tents underneath the Gardner Expressway, it doesn't seem like any lessons have been learned. The weather drops, the shelters fill up, people are left in the cold. I spent a year in search of a home. No one should spend a year looking for shelter. This is Spacing Radio. Back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, urban planner Sean Galbraith leads us through some frustrating bureaucracy, which may lead to multiple families looking for a new home. Planner and researcher Cheryl Case talks to us about an initiative to ensure everyone gets a seat at the table when we talk about housing in Toronto. And Councillor Gord Perks helps us understand what affordable can really mean. But first, Spacing Senior Editor John Lawrence helps give us the lay of the land when it comes to housing in Toronto as he prepares his latest book, House Divided. Stand by. Uh, so, John, the housing file is obviously a sprawling topic, and there's a lot of places we could go, but I was hoping that we could start with City Hall uh, at the beginning of the last term with the open door sort of uh, creation that John Tory tried to spearhead. Can you tell me a bit about that? Uh, well, I think that the most important point is that it didn't deliver a whole lot. So they had an ambitious target. Um, I forget the number, but it's about 5,000 units, and they fell way short of it for various reasons, but I think that, you know, sometimes these policies are advanced because around election season because it's good politics, but then, you know, the city loses the loses, you know, the plot and, and then it kind of uh, just gets delayed and, you know, gets shunted down the uh, down the policy agenda. Mm-hmm. And how did how do you think that they sort of lost steam over the previous council term? Well, I think that housing is a difficult topic for a lot of politicians. I think a lot of people, members of the public 
sort of they have an eyes glaze over issue with housing. Uh, you know, lots of people, you know, are thinking it's about social housing or it's about, you know, repairing TCHC. Um, and, you know, so there are 110,000 people living in TCHC, which is 5% of the population of the city. So it doesn't touch a whole lot of people. Um, and the, so, you know, and then it gets subsumed by other things, right? So the last council spent a lot of time sort of fighting about the Scarborough subway, as we mm-hmm. know, spent some time fighting about revenue tools, you know, all sorts of other stuff. So it just didn't really go anywhere. And yet this uh, last election that we had, uh, the two front runners for the mayoral chair uh, both ran uh, in some version uh, on housing. Uh, so it's clearly, uh, I think that's, an, that's enough indication to say that it is on people's mind to the extent that, uh, you know, a politician will run on it. Well, I think the difference. costs is significant, right? So the the reality of living in an incredibly expensive city has really, um, you know, settled in um, to larger, you know, larger portions of the population. The demographics are at work, you know, the millennial generation is sort of more involved in the housing market. Um, so there are lots of factors at play that, that cause this agenda to sort of move up the, um, you know, to move sort of higher in the public consciousness. But I think nothing you know, affects it any more than the reality of having to spend $600,000 on a very small condominium apartment, which you'll never finish paying for. Right. You may never get approved for a mortgage for it if unless you've got like a super stable job. Um, and so you have this situation where you can't afford to live in the city. And this is a reality for more and more people. And this is why it's a top of mind issue and why it was a top of mind issue in the election. So in the previous council term, we were talking more about uh, Toronto community housing and the backlog. And now we're not we're not just talking about that. We're still right. talking about it. But we're also talking about more of what people are calling the affordability crisis, where uh, even, you know, upper to middle income uh, young families or entrepreneurs or what have you can are struggling to find a, a foothold. Right. And so um, so one of the important points to note is that there are two related but separate issues, right? There's the affordable housing issue, right, which has to do with the uh, the condition of Toronto's subsidized housing stock. And then there's the housing affordability issue, which has to do with, you know, all the costs associated with housing for everyone else who doesn't qualify for rent-geared-to-income housing. And, uh, you know, the two play out you know, on parallel tracks. They, you know, one affects the other. Uh, but I think it, that, you know, as the you know, as more and more of the population of the city is affected by the, the you know, rising rents and rent evictions and all of that stuff, that the housing affordability has become more of a pressing uh, problem. Right, which brings us to uh, housing now, which was right. kind of uh, John Tory's plan when he uh, returned to office as, as mayor. And uh, so where are we at with that? I mean, it got tentative approval from, from council, but we're still sort of making our way through the, the very first budget uh, of this term. Right, so uh, what happened is that immediately after the election, um, city officials identified 11 sites for about um, 10,000 units, about a third of which will be below market units. Um, I think everything proposed is rental. These are uh, properties, you know, that were owned by the municipal government all around the city. Um, I found it interesting that the, you know, without any 
real effort, the city was able to sort of pull this rabbit out of the hat. So they had these properties. There are lots of properties around the city that could be, uh, you know, leveraged for this kind of housing. Uh, the uh, council at its first session approved a, a budget for a dedicated team to make these, you know, you know, to get these projects underway. Um, and now we're sort of in that process where, uh, you know, they're going to kind of scope out, you know, what, you know, what happens on each one of these parcels. Um, you know, they'll do a tendering process and all of the kind of mechanical things that need to happen to get buildings built. Mm-hmm. And still on the housing file, uh, we talk a lot in Toronto about the yellow belt, you know, mm-hmm. so-called, because if you look at the zoning maps of Toronto, uh, there's a sort of uh, stable neighborhood areas where there's only uh, maybe a single detached house allowed to be built, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and that, I think a lot of people would agree, is a missed opportunity for um, intensification, you know, uh, low impact density, that kind of thing. You're working on a book about that. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, so the the book is called House Divided, um, and it's going to look at it's going to look at a range of um, the housing issues that are sort of top of mind in the city. Some of which have to do with intensifying, you know, the Yellow Belt area. Some of which have to do with you know taking different approaches to sort of uh, you know low and medium rise residential housing. You know, there there are all sorts of interesting experiments and projects and typologies from, you know, that are being tested here and around the world, which we should really be doing. Um, And we're also looking at, you know, uh, some of the sort of historical reasons behind Toronto's ambivalence towards this kind of housing, which doesn't exist everywhere. You know, there are lots of places where, um, you know, where owning a house is, you know, is not sort of an expected thing. It's, you know, you rent or you buy an apartment. Um, And so these, so I am of the view that it's important to know how we got to where we are in order to kind of shift gears and course correct. And so if you could you could find the roots of our antipathy towards um, you know affordable rental housing and you know gentle density uh, all the way back to the beginning of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, in your work, and, and I think a lot of people are thinking about these issues of zoning, and uh, you point out that. Uh, there are these sort of low density, but like multi-unit housing uh, throughout uh, largely the old Toronto, uh, uh, which could never be built now. Uh, right. Can you talk a bit about that? So, um, in the old city of Toronto, there's a uh, there's a residential zoning designation which allows you know full range of kind of low rise uh, residential buildings, right, from single family to duplexes, triplexes you know, fourplexes, sixplexes, walk-up apartments, the whole range. And um, a lot of those predate any kind of zoning regulations. So right. The zoning was, you know, sort of uh, applied after the fact. Um, the post-war suburbs primarily are uh, the, you know, the yellow belt that you mentioned before. Um, they're zones, single-family residential or their apartment buildings. Um, and the, uh, you know, I think that you don't need to be... Uh, uh, an expert on property values in Toronto to know that um, the areas that are um, that have these you know sort of small apartment buildings or triplexes or uh, are also places with you know very valuable real estate. Mm-hmm. So uh, the point I always make is that the sky did not fall. Right. So you can live in these neighborhoods with you know people who 
have, you know, who share a house, you know, you know, a number of families sharing a single house um, or a single dwelling, um, you know, without having any undue effect on your property values. And in fact, there's an argument to be made that the property values are enhanced because this, the, these communities become more dense and more vibrant. Um, you know, local amenities are more used, they're more sought after. So, and, and you know, there are lots of, you know, there are lots of places. You only need to go to Montreal to see that, you know, having more density in residential neighborhoods gives a lot of vibrancy to residential neighborhoods. And so there's not going to be one, you know, fait accompli that's going to, you know, solve housing. You can't solve housing because housing, as you said, it, there's many different aspects of it. But so what would you like to see in the short term? What kind of movement? Well, I'd like to see council uh, look at this issue in a comprehensive way, which does not seem to happen. So uh, an important part of it is investing in subsidized housing and, uh, you know, not sort of kicking that ball down the, the field. And another important component of it is looking at uh, zoning bylaws that, you know, cr that create the that ring fence very exclusive neighborhoods that are increasingly off limits to most people, uh, and to allow more, uh, uh, you know, more uh, density in those neighborhoods, gentle density. Uh, another uh, important element of it is, you know, architecturally and design. Um, you know, looking at innovative types of design and then kind of reverse engineering those designs. I mean, we, you know, one of my collaborators on House Divided is Alex Bozikovic, who is the Global Mills architecture critic. And, you know, he's writing about some of, you know, the the designs of, uh, you know, s small apartment buildings that can be found in, you know, different places in Europe and says, well, you know, you couldn't build those here. It's like, well, what do they know that we don't know? Or what do we know that they don't know? You know, why couldn't we build those buildings here? Um, and so let's figure that out and then take away those roadblocks. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time. Next, we had Cheryl Case on last year when the study she co-wrote showed that despite the massive demand for housing in Toronto, some neighborhood populations were actually on the decline. Now, she's working on a housing in focus initiative that aims to bring everyday people to the planning table and help educate about how community planning works in the city. So Cheryl, welcome back. Hey, I'm so happy to be here again. Uh, you've been busy, uh, but first I, I want to talk about uh, one of your projects, Housing in Focus. Can you tell me uh, what that is? Yeah, so Housing in Focus, uh, the idea came to me crazy enough that um, we need to consult lower income people to see how to address this affordable housing crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and so from that idea, I was uh, compelled to write a grant application and Laidlaw funded me. So so uh, I'm very thankful to them for, for their support. Um, and so Housing in Focus, what it did is it engaged 140 residents across the city of Toronto, um, Etobicoke, West, uh, Weston, uh, Parkdale, in Scarborough by the Golden Mile, and in East York mm -hmm. uh, by Main Station, that area consulted 140 residents in six workshops uh, and five additional training sessions with youth to explore the intersection of human rights, 
housing policy and land use policy. So what were some of the themes that came out of these uh, these meetings that uh, sort of differ from your average planning meeting or, you know, a, a community council meeting, that kind of thing? Yeah. So the housing and focus workshops were designed to, to give space for people to talk about their lived experience. And so that's what you really got a lot of it. So typically, uh, you know, city-led consultations, you don't get to hear the lived experience stories from people who are um, lacking access to adequate and affordable housing. The people who attended the workshops, um, they discussed feeling stuck in their apartments. Um, They discussed, you know, I've been living in this country for 30 years. I'm retiring soon and I don't know, you know, I'm not going to have access to affordable housing. Um, Describing, you know, having to move out of neighborhoods because they are pushed out economically. Um, So I think that was, you know, one, an example of something that was very different from a typical consultation. Um, in my experience of going to community consultations and from hearing from others, it's usually spaces given first or spaces taken up first by those who are not experiencing uh, precarity in housing. So um, they're very comfortable with their housing situation. And so their first instinct is to talk about other issues. One like consultation that is kind of burned into my brain was one that I attended in Weston. Um, it was in April of last year where um, it was a 22-story tower that was, was a proposed, and this was actually to scale with the other uh, towers in the neighborhood. And there was no affordable housing build. But you see immediately after the city planner and the developer, they made their presentation about the policy and the shadows, homeowners and other concerned members came up and stated, I hope there's no affordable housing. No affordable housing was proposed. So why did they even like, it's just like baffling to me to think that that was their first response. Do you have a perspective on where that pushback comes from in in neighborhoods like you saw from... and what's the fear? What's the fear of affordable yeah. housing? Um, it's it's very well documented why these people oppose affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say documented, I mean like you can go back to the 50s and, and before to see, you know, documentation on this. And essentially they're afraid of the social class of their neighborhood going down, right? So they don't want lower income and also affiliate as affiliated lower class. Right. I put in quotation marks for the listeners um, to be in their neighborhood. There's concerns about traffic um, and about um, just a general height difference. Those are real concerns. They don't take precedence over the need for people to have access to adequate and affordable housing. And finally, uh, you've also been doing some work about kind of taking the language of planning and housing and uh, providing people with education and their own language to be able to uh, speak to people on on an even level. Uh, can you speak about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so to like urban planners and people of an industry and like urban nerds, like everyone living listening to this podcast, like hey out there, I love you. Um, <laughs> Like, we're great, but we need to reach out to people beyond our circles. And, like, the people in the health industries, in the service provision industry, um, like, they're dealing with people face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing is, like, like they don't – a lot of them don't know how to participate in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found is that, like, yeah, because they, they're just so focused on their day-to-day operations – that they don't have time for this, right? And so 
I believe it's actually really important for them to to to, to be involved because um, a lot of the problems that they're working to address, um, you know, in some ways actually originate from the way that we organize our land, right? right? Um, and and how we finance our land and all those kinds of things that come in the urban planning space. Um, so yeah, that's why I think it's it's really important so that they're educated so that they can participate in this conversation. Um, too many conferences I've gone to where it's just other urban planners or like urban like industry folk, right? Right. Um, so I want to see more like community center um, and labor organizers and. Um, just a, a, a wider variety of, of people in this conversation. And I think that like part of that is about discussing urban planning and reaching out to those people right. to participate. Yeah, Bring bring urban planning out of the ivory tower and yeah. kind of get it out onto the streets. Yeah, yeah. It's always a pleasure talking to you and uh, yeah, to be continued, I think. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And you can find both Cheryl and John's work in House Divided when it hits bookshelves this summer. Look for it. Now, I'm a guy who loves a good tweet storm. But a few months back, Sean Galbraith unleashed his frustration about the city's sometimes stringent zoning bylaws and how it affected a number of families in a home he was representing at the Committee of Adjustment. And, well, you really have to hear him tell it. So part of my practice is helping uh, people get approvals through the Committee of Adjustment. And uh, one of the recent files was for a triplex, uh, not in downtown Toronto. I haven't said what part of the city it is because it doesn't really matter because it's the same in most of the city. Uh, so this, this was a case where about 20 years ago, a house was illegally converted into a triplex. Happens all over the place in Toronto. Uh, this one changed hands, and uh, they needed to get fire inspected. Uh, it passed the fire inspection with flying colors, exceeding the requirements for a six-story apartment building, um, notwithstanding that it's only a three-story house with three units in it. But those three units were not legal, and so the fire department had to tell the city, hey, there are illegal apartments in here. And that started a process that ended up at the Committee of Adjustment. Um, the, the three units were, uh, basically affordable housing. There was one unit, uh, occupied by, uh, an older woman on disability, one unit of a, with a single mom, uh, who had to keep her kid in a local school district, even though she works as a social worker out in Peel region. And then the third unit was a young immigrant couple who are just sort of getting their start. Um, all very affordable rents uh, that weren't going to be increased even though there was a new owner. Uh, so this is, this is the, kind of, the kind of housing that we need an exponentially increasing uh, amount of. Uh, it seems ideal. It, it, it was ideal. Um, and so as part of the evaluation of, by the city, 
it was determined that only two variances were needed. Uh, one variance was that uh, three parking spaces are required, only one was provided. Nobody cared about that variance. It was totally reasonable. And part of the leases for the tenants uh, was that only one unit gets a parking space and everybody else doesn't. Fine, right. dealt with. The other one was uh, for the use itself. So this is located within the infamous Yellow Belt and within the most restrictive of the Yellow Belt zoning districts, the RD zone, the residential detached only zone, mm -hmm. the yellowest of the Yellow Belt. <laughs> and um, a triplex is not a permitted use. Right. Um, and if you want to have a secondary suite, you're only allowed one secondary suite. Elsewhere in Toronto, primarily Old City of Toronto, where you have the glorious R zone, the residential zone, you're allowed multiple secondary suites mm -hmm. uh, and you're allowed a triplex. So this wouldn't have even been an issue. Uh, but because this isn't in a zone that permits it, it became an issue. Now, uh, this is if you were to look at this building from the outside, you would basically have no idea that there were multiple units in it. It looked like a two and a half story suburban house nothing out of the ordinary at all. It completely fits in with the character of the neighborhood. This is what we talk about when we talk about gentle density. It is the gentlest of densities, right. yes, absolutely. Um, and as evidenced by the fact that only two variances were needed, the use and parking. Um, not a single square inch of building was proposed to be added, uh, and the existing building completely complied. Um, so totally reasonable. Uh, we had 45 letters of support from neighbors, which in my experience, I have, I have absolutely never had anything approaching that much support. Uh, everybody said that these tenants have always been nothing but great neighbors. And there's never been any problems from the, from the building. Uh, and we had an unprecedented amount of support. Local councillor gave a letter of support as well. Wasn't the most supportive letter of support, but would take it. Like, there was no opposition to this whatsoever um, until it got to the planning department where the planning department said that this, uh, this wholly existing triplex that has been there for 20 years and has not created a single problem uh, violated the, uh, what are called the four tests under the Planning Act uh, that minor variances have to, have to pass. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so they, they recommended refusal of the variance because it wasn't minor. Right. Um, and that's, th that can be tough to overcome, a, uh, a recommendation for refusal. Uh, and it's not entirely that I think the planning department was necessarily wrong. I think the zoning is wrong. Right. Uh, I think the zoning is ridiculous. They're just they're enforcing the letter of the law. Yeah, absolutely. Which doesn't come from them. Sure. It's just their job. I mean, maybe... You know, it's arguable that maybe they could have just not expressed an opinion at all, which is how most files come through the Committee of Adjustment. Right. Um, the, the rule of thumb is basically that if the planning department is okay with it and doesn't really have an issue, they don't comment at all. They don't express support for projects. They only uh, express opposition. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is one that they chose to express opposition on. Any idea why? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It wasn't like just if we had to guess like one angry neighbor or no, there is was it really just someone uh, came across their desk and said, well, strictly speaking, strictly speaking, this, you know, 
this there's an argument that could be made that this doesn't meet the intent. So, and and I would disagree with that. I think it absolutely meets the intent of uh, of the uh, the four tests of the the, plan, of the planning act. Um, I wouldn't have taken it if I didn't. Um, and frankly, the consequences uh, of this not being allowed uh, just greatly outweigh the benefit of allowing it. Right. The consequences in this case being three uprooted families, presumably. But potentially, yeah. I mean, the uh, so before we get it too ahead of ourselves, so I, we mm-hmm. would go to the committee of adjustment, and we had several neighbors there um, in support, uh, and we had two of the three uh, unit tenants there saying, "Please approve this. We need this. We have no alternatives. Like it's not like you're going to find." alternative affordable housing in any neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't exist. Uh, and I made my case, and um, there was pushback from primarily one member of the committee. So this today, or that day, it was a three-member committee. Uh, and they voted, and they turned it down. Right. And we were all very disappointed. So how common is a story like yours uh, for you professionally or just anecdotally that you you know, been in this business, how often do you hear about something like this? It's, I've heard about it a few times. Um, it's rare that this type of project goes to a committee of adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's rare that you'd have a landlord that wants to maintain it. Uh, it's much easier to just say, mm, I bought an illegal use. Oh, well, going to have to kick you out and raise the rent. Right. Or convert it into a detached house mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, so I don't know that we have a way of really tracking this. Um, I don't know. I don't think the city is tracking it, how many times it refuses existing triplexes that aren't allowed. Right. Um, and what the impact is to the number of units. Right. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't know how often it happens. Um, However, however often it happens, it happens too often. Right. So in a city where we have an affordability crisis mm-hmm. that we talk about uh, often, it makes headlines, uh, the two front runners for the, pre, the mayoral campaign that just happened both ran on some version of affordable housing, fixing the affordability crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so given that, it seems like in this city, if the city's stated goal is to... Uh, uh, tackle this affordability crisis that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing where the the city might not be able to uh with any kind of speed or uh efficacy tackle you know the housing market that's a big broad sweeping thing a lot of variables and and forces at at play there Mm -hmm. but something that they presumably do have control of is is these you know variances like these these specific lines in the the you know provincial planning act and and again in the more local zoning bylaws so the city doesn't have a lot of control over the outcome of variance applications Mm -hmm. the city does have control over what is required to get a variance okay so the committee of adjustment is basically an arm's length agency of the city and they're appointed by the city uh, but they make their own decisions Mm -hmm. Uh, you can have the support of the councillor and 45 neighbours, and if the committee thinks that you don't meet those four tests under the Planning Act, you're not getting your approval, period. Right. Um, which is good because it also means that 
you could have a project that has 45 letters of opposition and the opposition of local councillor, and you entirely meet the four tests of the Planning Act, and you get your approval. Mm-hmm. So it, it's you know it's a it's a it's a good thing that it's independent, but you know it can can have negative decisions every once in a while. Right. Um, but as I said, the, the city controls what land uses are permitted, and therefore what's going to require a committee application. In former city of Toronto, where you have this R zone, or in most of York, where you have what's called the RM zone, residential multiple, um, a triplex is pretty much permitted as of right anywhere in those areas. That's great. Uh, and you would, never, you would never go to committee of adjustment for the use. You may have to go for committee of adjustment for parking because it's always about parking, or you may have to go because of density or side yard setbacks, and you can argue about those things. But you, you, you don't have to get into an argument, is two units permitted, which it is even in the RD zone, mm-hmm. but three units is completely beyond the pale and totally ridiculous, and we cannot allow this to happen. Right. It is offensive to the zoning bylaw. Right. And that is offensive to me. To play the other side, though, uh, I'm, I'm certain that these rules weren't, you know, established maliciously. When you talk no. about these, these four tests, I mean, they, they must be serving some purpose, even if the purpose can sometimes uh, be counter to the stated goals of, of the city. Sure. I don't have an issue necessarily with the four tests. I have an issue with the zoning. Right. Um, the, the, you know, the history of zoning in general and in Toronto is rife with, um, you know, racism and classism and anti-religious sentiment and bias and, you know, white homeowner privilege. Uh, And then it's also, you know, we want to provide a nice place for people to live. And we don't want a factory next to a house. Mm-hmm. And we don't want, you know, noxious uses uh, too close. And so we have, you know, the separation of the uses, what's somewhat called Euclidean zoning out of the states, um, where you have single-use zones. And, I mean, you can see this in Toronto basically by when an area was developed. If it was developed pre-zoning, you have extremely flexible zoning because it had to be flexible to accommodate this wide range of uses that had organically sort of popped up in the area. You could never, you could never single-use zone uh, the annex right. or Parkdale or whatever. They're, Presumably they're because wild. it developed in a sort of ad hoc kind of yeah, fashion they, in the uh, Victorian age. Completely. Yeah. You have... You have a, a detached house next to a four-story walk-up, next to a triplex, next to a fourplex, next to a house that's been split into 10 apartments, or, you know, just this weird, eclectic, amazing, um, messy, urbanist kind of, kind of thing. And the single-use zoning, in part, was a reaction to that. Mm-hmm. You know, the pendulum swung the other way, and it swung too far and broke out the side of the clock. So what's the recourse? Well, you know, 
I understand that counselors sometimes are under a lot of pressure from residents to maintain the status quo, especially mm-hmm. because the people who can really throw their weight around are those people who own the you know single residential stable sure. houses. Uh, but you know, you, you often find a lot of counselors trying to balance their um, you know genuine uh, ne- desire for mm-hmm. affordable housing, and, and then you come up against this example, which I think is a pretty clear indication that our own rules are not working towards our stated goals. They don't. Um, I think first thing that we should do is acknowledge that the official plans, um, provisions around, uh, stable neighborhoods are misguided and long overdue for a substantial revision. Um, we really need, I think two zones in Toronto. That's it. Mm -hmm. Two residential zones in Toronto. We need the R zone and we need the RA zone. The R zone, residential zone that allows everything that's low rise. Anything that's compatible in scale with a house, essentially. Okay. What we have in old Toronto. And we need the RA zone, the residential apartment zone. And those are for, you know, your apartment neighborhoods. You don't want those necessarily in the middle of a residential area. That's fine. We can keep those ones you know, in distinct areas. Six stories or higher. Yeah, basically, yeah. But I don't see any valid reason to maintain detached-only zoning in, you know, 62% of residential zones in the city of Toronto. Like, that's how, that's that's a lot of land that we're preserving for the interest of a detached homeowner. Mm -hmm. When sticking a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex right next to it is not an offensive use. It's not noxious. And zoning was intended to separate noxious uses from, you know, not noxious uses. Right. And what we're saying is that a fourplex is a noxious use. Mm-hmm. And I find that obnoxious. <laughs> And finally, Progressive Councillor Gord Perks has long advocated for more investment in affordable housing, especially for lower-income people, immigrants, or street-involved people desperate for a roof. I sat down with Councillor Perks in Swansea Town Hall. Uh, Gord, thank you for uh, sitting down with me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, I want to talk housing, but uh, first I think we have to clear up some, uh, like a couple definitions, because I think we talk about two things when we talk about housing, which, as you mentioned, is, is very broad. Uh, I think we're talking about people priced out of their neighborhood, and I think we're talking about people priced out of doors, and they're kind of related, but very different things. Uh, yeah, I'm... Some people try to draw a distinction between affordable housing, which means that uh, you can't afford any kind of housing, and uh, uh, housing affordability, which is uh, the sort of people under 30, call it, or maybe under 40, Mm -hmm. uh, can't afford the kind of housing that their parents had. Um, You know, I've got uh, three kids... uh, one's 30 and two are 28 and none of them will ever be able to live in the neighborhood they grew up in. Right. Uh, so yes, there are those. I actually think there are way more discontinuities in the housing market than that. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, a group of people who are on social assistance. 
uh, Ontario Works, Ontario Disability Support Program. The amount of money that uh, they get as the housing portion of their, their social supports uh, literally cannot afford any rental unit anywhere in, in the city of Toronto. Right. Uh, so the only way they can be housed is uh, if they receive some sort of rent supplement program on top of their uh, Ontario Works check. Right. Um, then there are people who are uh, working... Let's say everything between a, someone who's just started a nursing career and someone who's working um, uh, at a minimum wage job uh, in retail. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty broad income category. Those people can't find any rental at any price in the city of Toronto, but they're not eligible for uh, a housing allowance from any program. Right. Uh, so uh, a lot of people in those circumstances are uh, sharing uh, a floor of a house with some friends. And these are people who are already into their careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there, then there are people uh, who are newly arrived in Toronto trying to start careers. They have different set of housing challenges altogether and different kinds of programs that may or may not help them. Uh, and then there's that a whole swath of people who... Uh, geez, when I was 20, we would have called them yuppies, young urban professionals. Yeah. I don't know what you call them now. Uh, uh, who are just priced out of uh, the kind of space uh, that they enjoyed as, as children. But they're also uh, priced out of ownership mm-hmm. of housing unless they get you know uh, a tiny bachelor-sized uh, condo unit somewhere in the fringes of the GTA. Right. And that creates a whole bunch of other challenges too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering, you know, when we talk about affordable, is there an official city definition of affordable or is it just kind of, it depends who you ask? Uh, there are a variety of different uh, definitions based on what kind of funding program uh, is is going to apply. Uh, if you're looking at um, uh, what people in the housing community and social researchers talk about is kind of the ideal. Uh, none of us should be paying more than a third of our income okay. uh, on, for housing. Right. Uh, we don't come anywhere close to that for probably 60 to 80% of the people who live in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, another measure is uh, uh, what Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation publishes uh, figures based on what the average uh, bachelor unit rents for, what the average one-bedroom rents for, two-bedroom, ha- average purchase price of a house, average per- purchase price of a condo. Is it the, kind of the big max scale? Yeah. Or the um, basket of groceries? That kind and, of and, and that, that average uh, number uh, gets access to certain kind of... Uh, tax breaks and subsidy programs to developers to incent them to build things that are below average. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other programs, uh, the, the tax breaks and incentives to developers kicks in at 80% of that average market price. So there's no uh, unified number that explains it all and solves it all. Mm-hmm. Rather, there are eligibilities for different programs. And of course, 
there's the um, the low income cutoff number that uh, makes you eligible uh, to get into assisted housing through Toronto Community Housing or uh, one of the not-for-profits or co-ops that the uh, city works with to provide that more deeply affordable housing. Mm-hmm. Then there's another category. I, I do go on. <laughs> right. uh, then there's another category, um, which is uh, supportive housing, where for some some reason, it may be mental health, it may be a physical disability, it may uh, be that you're struggling with an addiction or two or more of those, those issues, uh, you become eligible for supportive housing where there are services provided on site to help you stay in the housing and manage your, your whatever the support is you need. Mm-hmm. So when the city, say, for instance, makes a, a, a deal with a developer who says you can build this kind of building, but certain amount of units have to be affordable rental, what does that mean in practical terms? So in practical terms right now, uh, it depends on the program. Okay. And it depends on how it arrived there. So there's a... a a threshold that uh, we use for the program that the mayor introduced uh, last term, Open Door, mm-hmm. uh, which is average average market rent according to CMHC or average uh, homeowner average purchase price mm-hmm. according to CMHC. Uh, if you're building uh, a not for profit operation, um, there a whole different set of of things apply. Right. Uh, and and a lot of that depends on uh, what the federal programs are that we're trying to reach into to match uh, whatever the city can come up with because the more money we can provide to the not-for-profit housing operation, uh, the more deeply affordable and the larger number of units that they can get. Right. Uh, then there's a, a third lane, which is sometimes councillors like myself will negotiate... Uh, through a, a Section 37 agreement for a development, uh, sometimes on-site, sometimes off-site. And uh, we can write terms into that Section 37 agreement uh, about what kind of affordability, but also the length of tenure. Right. That's another thing that's variable in all of this. Some of these are, the unit has to be affordable for 20 years, 50 years, 99 years in perpetuity. Right, so it's kind of whatever you can shake hands on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, you mentioned o- the open doors thing from previous term. Uh, now we're talking about housing now and create TO. Um, mm-hmm. It's new. We've, you know, we've really just started getting into this term of council. We're still w- wading through the new budget. But uh, what, what do you see uh, out of this housing now or create TO? Well, um, I'm one of a handful of people who voted against the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the central premise of uh, housing now is that we, the public, own a bunch of assets, land, mm-hmm. and uh, we're going to, uh, through a combination of, of gifting some of that land to private developers and uh, uh, providing incentives that we're actually going to ultimately have to pay back out of the tax base, uh, try to entice private developers to build uh, some mix of affordable housing definitions to will vary. Uh, and we're going to put it out for a tendering process, look at it and see uh, which private developers will give us uh, the most or the best housing option in exchange for giving them those public assets and, and public dollars, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
to my mind, we should be doing what the city of Toronto did uh, up until when I was a teenager and what many other Canadian cities and European cities currently do, which is we should be acting as the developer. We don't have to give away any public benefit to anybody. And if we manage it, uh, we can get a better mix of different kinds of affordabilities and uh, the tenure will be permanent. Right. And what is a barrier to that, do you see? Uh, there are a couple barriers. Uh, one is named Doug Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a time when the provincial government participated in, in these kinds of programs. We're not sanguine about that possibility. Uh, another is that the uh, the the much ballyhooed national housing strategy is all back-end loaded, mm-hmm. uh, which means that the amounts of money uh, that are available to us now are, are quite modest. Uh, the other constraint is that we have had now nine successive budgets uh, at the city of Toronto where we have uh, decreased our fiscal capacity by keeping property taxes down. Mm-hmm. So our own ability to develop this land is getting constrained by uh, sort of an austerity. We mm-hmm. have actually had austerity budgets for close to a decade now. Right. So it's money. And, and so given those fiscal restraints, what do you hope you can accomplish this term? I hope to smash through the fiscal constraints. I think that um, I think that if, if uh, people who are facing any one of the affordability challenges that we discussed had any sense of what happens in places like Stockholm or Vienna or Berlin or uh, in various Scottish uh, municipalities where uh, mixed-income housing is built. Mm -hmm. Uh, So everyone from that sort of middle-income, slightly upper-middle-income, actually, to the people who who need need supports, and everybody in between. So a majority of the population uh, are offered opportunities to live in a range of co-op, not-for-profit, and directly government-delivered services. Mm -hmm. Because it's a mix of income, you get enough... uh, rent paid that uh, the cost of maintaining the buildings mm-hmm. is covered. Right. The cost of paying off the the construction cost and any debt you incurred in constructing it is paid off through rent. Right. And you're, you're providing housing for people who can't cover those kinds of rents because it's mixed income. If people in Canada knew that, A, we used to do that up until... Paul Martin cut uh, the federal government out of uh, housing when he was the minister of finance, Uh, and B, places all over the world are still doing it, Uh, I think that we'd be having a very different conversation about housing and housing affordability in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And in terms of uh, zoning, which I know is uh, a fraught topic. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Is there any... If I die of an aneurysm, it will be cut because of a Twitter thread about zoning. Well, I, I sincerely hope that doesn't happen, but is there something, you know under the city's purview that that the city can do to add maybe affordable or gentle density uh, for lower or probably middle-income people? Yeah. So uh, there are some things that can be done, and we've actually uh, moved on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, after a lot of resistance in some of the suburban neighborhoods, uh, we're relaxing the permission uh, for secondary suites. Okay. So that's, you know, I want to turn my basement or my second floor of my house or whatever it is right. into a rental unit. Uh, we're both making it easier in terms of the zoning. 
um, but also uh, waiving some of the charges and fees that we normally would apply there. Right. Uh, so that will help. Uh, we're also uh, currently embroiled in a hearing at the Provincial Local Planning Appeals Tribunal where we tried to zone an awful lot of the Airbnb uh, type stuff out of existence. Right. That one thing would would be uh, would probably create more sort of mid range affordable rental right. than the in, in, than all of the housing programs that uh, Mayor Tory has announced in his two terms of office. That's how big that chunk of the market is. Right. Another piece uh, which I initiated is to try to get uh, protections in our planning law for uh, what we call dwelling rooms. So that would be rooms in uh, rooming houses and so on Mm -hmm. to make it harder to demolish them. The final piece is uh, uh, some of us on council are trying to make that rooming house style of housing as of right right across the city. Mm -hmm. So that's the suite of things that I think actually will help. I know there are other conversations and hopes out there. All right. Well, Councillor Perks, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me on. And that is the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you like this program, please tell your Realtor, your Workplace Slack, and your many former roommates. A like, share, subscribe, or ratings on iTunes will go a long way to helping us reach new listeners. And if you can spare a second, please do. I make this show with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our blog at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. The 15th anniversary issue of the magazine should hit shelves any second now, so go get a copy. In the meantime, stay warm. Cheers.